Welcome back to Uplifting Impact. It's awesome to be here with you today. I am with my dear friend, Warren, and Warren is going to be talking to us today really from the perspective of what happens at the university level. Warren, aka War, who is originally from Virginia, is the Assistant Dean of Students and the Director of Gender and Sexuality Campus Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Bucky! I am a UW-Madison uh, <laughs> a grad, so I have to give a shout out there. Um, prior to being in this Assistant Dean role, Warren was actually the Founding Director of the Inclusive Excellence Center at UW-Milwaukee, and that is actually where we met uh, through that organization and that department, Warren really led an array of different services that were campus-wide that focused on the ideas of equity and intercultural campus initiative for minoritized students. Warren has aspirations, and I love this, Warren, I didn't know this about you until I read it in your bio, but has aspirations of breathing on every continent and becoming a chief preparedness officer. If I had that role, I would hire you right now. Madison, don't be mad. And making a career adjustment toward travel experiences and writing at the age of 55. Warren, we are so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. So I want to jump right into this and really first just ask you, why are you doing this work? What brings you into the diversity, equity, and inclusion space? Great question. I think first and foremost, my lived experience brought me to, I would actually, I would modify that and say my lived experience and observations over the course of my life have brought me into doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work or DEI work. One, growing up as a person of color in the South, uh, growing up poor to a, in a single parent, identifying as uh, LGBT pretty early on and witnessing not only the discrimination that I was encountering, but discrimination as it was and injustice as it was being doled out by people and systems like folks who are actors or agents of these systems upon other people really sparked me to want to get into the work. And I would highlight or think first and foremost about mentors, folks that over the course of my life and my career, people who have nurtured, encouraged, and challenged me along the way in my perspective, in in my engagement, the way that I'm showing up or taking space and in turn want to turn or rather uh, want to be able to provide that or be that person for others as well, right? If I can think about the ways in which mentors have changed systems or modified, you know, policies, procedures, practices, et cetera, for my benefit, uh, how can I turn around and do the same for others, right? I think about the the adage of, If someone's holding the door open for you, you have to turn around and make sure you're holding the door for others, if not taking the door off the hinges. I love that. I love the idea of taking the door off the hinges. Why not just break it all down, right? And let make make sure that more people are able to have access to it. So when you're thinking about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, you're thinking about what's happening at the university level, what are some of the things that you're most proud of being a part of, right? What are the things that have been most impactful in trying to create that inclusive space where you are breaking down those doors, where you're taking them off the hinges? So several things come to mind. One, and this is, I think, where I, where, I, where my work is the most fulfilling, is identifying the pipeline and, and mentoring, nurturing new professionals in the field of higher education and student services. If it's giving someone a 
quote unquote chance. I'm not a big fan of that language. It's the language that comes to mind at the moment. Perhaps it's inviting the person who has a lot of really great potential, a lot of really great growth potential and may have a bachelor's degree, inviting that person into the job or offering the person, a person, that person rather, a job rather than the person with a master's degree. Right. So that might be one of the ways I also think about like here are and here's an array of professional development experiences and not siloing those in higher education. So here are diversity, equity, inclusion pieces. Here's leadership. Here is a learning opportunity or leadership opportunity from a completely different industry, if you will. And let's capitalize on that. That would be one. I also as my role in higher education has become increasingly more administrator and I have less contact with students directly, right? I have to I have to carve out and intentionally create space to interact with students. Much of my work becomes policy focused. So uh, if it's do engaging in policy analysis and, and factoring in and what what policy or rather what populations, particularly vulnerable populations, does this does this policy help? right? Or, or, or what populations is this policy advantageous to? And then on the other side of that, if you will, what populations is this policy and its eventual implementation disadvantageous to, right? They're like, here's this policy that's going to benefit low-income students and students of color, and it will adversely impact first-generation college students or adversely impact veteran students, et cetera, right? Like doing a deep analysis on this piece. So doing policy analysis and policy crafting, and, and facilitating or helping higher level administrators interpret policy and then seeing gaps. So recognizing that not all administrators have the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens to, to factor in or consider all of the decisions that they are making. Uh, one of the things that I, I engage in is questioning convention a lot, right? So just because we've done this this way for a very long time doesn't mean it has to continue to be done this way. Why can't we figure out a way that is both culturally responsive, um, engages cultural humility, and prioritizes the most vulnerable populations that we're intending to serve via our work? And in higher education, that would be folks from uh, economically modest backgrounds, folks who are first generation, students of color, primarily because historically folks of color have been excluded from higher education, right? The, like, how many historically and predominantly white institutions are there across the U.S., even though our populations of color across the U.S. are growing extensively. So those are some of the things that I think about that I engage in. With the new professionals, I think about my work with graduate students and folks that I've said this before, not to you, friend, but that there are grad students that I have had the great fortune of working with that I am certain at some point in time in my career, I will report to. That is so awesome for you to think that way. And I want to break up what you just said into a couple of big like takeaways that I wrote down, right? So one, just being an advocate and making sure that you're creating pathways for other young professionals and pathways that will go beyond where you are, like you just said, so that you can report to the young people that you're mentoring. I think that's just really awesome and something that leaders should be doing at every levels, but doing it with a diversity, equity, inclusion lens, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but really does push you to think about who are people who are non-traditionally put into these positions where they can get that kind of mentorship. 
right? Because everybody needs it. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, but there's some people who are going to get it and some people who are not going to get it just based off of some of the structures that we have in place. So that is one component of it. And then the other component that you really dove into, I think is very interesting is the policy piece. Now, I didn't know this about you until this call. And it's surprising because we've known each other for such a, a long time that your work really started and you did your master's in thinking about how policy can adversely impact different communities and making sure that you are prepared in situations to, and I don't, I'm not going to say this as well as you can uh, war, but I want to make sure that I'm getting, you know, the, the basic concept, but essentially so that everybody, when there's times of crisis or there's, there's challenges that come up that you're taking all these different perspectives in mind. And that's one of the roles that you're playing right now at the university. Could you tell us a little bit more about how, in you know times of, of crisis or even times of challenge or, or times where you're trying to do some strategic planning, why having this diversity, equity, and inclusion lens is so important? Certainly. So a, a bit about the role that I'm in right now. So I'm on the what is called the planning team or the planning section for the Emergency Operations Center at UW-Madison. And essentially that the, the Emergency Operations Center was activated when essentially COVID-19 or the RONA took hold and upended much of our lives uh, across the U.S. Part of my contribution to the Emergency Operations Center in the planning section is to think about what is going on right now, right? So like gathering all the information, so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. What is going on in the immediate future? So what do we need to plan for? What things are coming in? What There's a bit of projection using the data available to us and then farther into the future we're talking not just a week into the future like three months into the future like three you know or six months into the future so on and so forth so my team was strategizing about what when rather when campus initially shut down in mid-march we were planning a variety of scenarios so like what happens if so it's i think when i explain to folks it it's some what if scenarios so what if the state of Wisconsin goes the route of Italy. So mind you, this is a conversation that we were having in March, right? So if we're, what if planning? What if we can come back after two weeks to in-person instruction? What if the numbers exceed projections? What if like Italy, there's a agreement, like a mass shutdown, right? As we're in right now, right? So society in many ways is shut down. Like, what do we do? How does the institution, how does the, you know, and it's, it's purpose to educate and, and, and share the knowledge produced at the institution across the state of Wisconsin. How do we continue doing that in, in this new environment? So my team was, you know, planning, generating, you know, potential scenarios. So here's ways that things could go wrong and here's how we might respond to it if things go wrong. I mean, much of that is structured by policy, right? And if folks, when they are crafting policy, aren't thinking or engaging with it with a DEI lens or with that degree of analysis, there are going to be adverse impacts to vulnerable, marginalized and minoritized populations, period. If your lens isn't informed by DEI, you're you're only thinking about the experiences that you have directly observed or your own experiences. Right. And then effectively generalizing that. So engaging in the DEI piece is instantaneously thinking about, at least in in when I was doing some of the emergency planning and what if scenario thinking, part of that planning is you know, acknowledging who's the most vulnerable to COVID-19. And at the time, we didn't know, we didn't have the numbers about the ways in which African-American men were being impacted by COVID-19. What we knew 
Is that folks with asthma, folks with diabetes, high blood pressure, or folks with, as public health literature refers to them as comorbidities or pre-existing conditions, chronic illnesses, et cetera, were particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. So one of the strategies is then everyone who has chronic illnesses or is at higher risk, for sure, they would not return to campus. Folks who don't have comorbidities or chronic illnesses could return. And this was, again, before everything was shut down. It's uh, so- interesting because it's your what you're doing is you're showing not only how the policies can be impacted by how but how important the data is, right? Mm-hmm. So part of what it requires if an institution wants to be responsive and wants to have policies that are going to be effective, you have to also be willing to collect that data. Who, what does your population look like? What are their challenges? Where are the places where they might be, one person might be more vulnerable than another and vice versa, right? Because we all have all of these different um, mixes. I know in talking to other people, some other things that have come up, do you have children at home? Would you be caring for a parent? Would you, right? These are all questions that are very, very mixed into who we are as individuals. And that that false frame of, you talked about doors in the beginning of this podcast, like breaking them down, but there's also this like weird idea that when you walk through the threshold of your work door, you all of a sudden lose everything that you had in your outside door, right? And that's Mm -hmm. not the case. That's not how human beings function. We are the same inside as we are outside, but sometimes creating that false divide, that false door and not getting the data that we might need to be able to be effective in our policy can really, you know, put organizations at a, just at a, at a place where they can't respond appropriately. Agreed. I, I mean, I often think about, and even when you are, and I think that you are getting at this, even when organizations, whether an institution of higher education, a K-12 school, or a nonprofit, um, when we are collecting data, we have to, in the construction of the tool, whatever we're using to collect data, if they're focus groups or a survey of some kind, should be engaging with a DEI lens then, right? Right. Like what ways, like who's going to respond this? Who's our ideal population? And the way that we're crafting this, is this the best route to get to that population? In my my own master's research, we did a variety of data collection strategies because we were trying to get at, get to and engage with vulnerable populations in particular. So limited English speaking, recent immigrant populations from Central America and Southeast Asia to the Metro Milwaukee area that surveys aren't going to do it, right? That like we can't assume literacy in particularly English and we can't assume literacy period or what level of literacy like focus groups and then who are you going to have translate in their variety of dialects? Are you going to have enough translators for the variety of dialects and things of that nature? So there's a richness there to the story, no matter how you're gathering the data. And I think about this in my practice, if it's quantitative or qualitative data, right? And all data to me is, is valid, right? right? So not only quantitative and that qualitative data comes up in a variety of ways. So me sharing my personal story is a data point, right? The like folks lived experience. I think about the ways that we learn to navigate the world. We don't only learn to navigate the world via like research articles through publishing, right? That like we learn by doing, right? Like I know that the stove is hot. <laughs> I touched it as a little kid and the stove is hot, right? right. So like I learned that like it's I learned hot. from- You learn it's hot. Everybody says yes, like, yes, yes, it can't hot. be hot. Yes, hot. exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, right, that 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 it's blending those two. So approaching the data in a in a uh, with a DEI lens, and then when the data is available to you, 
one, I think about the people that you gather the data from, invite them in to help you interpret the data, right? They're like, oh, invite them so to interpret important. the data. And when you blend quantitative and qualitative, you are getting a richer or a more, as I like to think of it, a more textured story, right? Like it's not just breadth, it's depth. And then there is texture to the story when you are mm -hmm. blending and inviting folks in to interpret. So in my own work, we collect data on students via surveys, and focus groups. Um, we will also, to add to that, look at what students are putting out in the world. So what they are posting on Instagram and or Twitter. And we pull wow. from that and add, look at these visuals because those also add texture. And then as we are interpreting or trying to make meaning, mm -hmm. inviting students into like Right. So before I'm not even going to share with you what I'm thinking or what I'm interpreting, like I want to know what this means to you, what resonates, what moves you when you right. engage with this survey, with with these data points, so on and so forth. And it mm -hmm. offers so much more insight and complexity than I would have even on my own as someone who has and approaches our work with a, a deep through that lens. Absolutely. Yeah. So a couple of things I, I just want to point out. One, I love this idea that, you know, when you're thinking about it, it's not one is better than the other. It's the idea that when you blend them, you get more texture. And I think that it's actually more powerful, right? Because we have a lot of people who are listening to this and they're listening because they want to know, like, how can I move people in my organization towards having more of a diversity, equity, inclusion lens and, and you know, having better practices. And one of the things that I tell people all the time, you could spit statistics all you want to, but that's not what actually is going to move people, right? So having a more textured approach where you can say, here's the experiences that people are having. Here's the, you know, the, the data, but I'm showing it. And then I'm also going to show you the, the, the qualitative data. I'm going to be able to bring both of those two things together. So you see a complete picture of what's happening in our organization. I just want to make sure that listeners heard that because I think that that's really interesting. The second thing I want to make sure that you all heard was this idea of bringing the people in to actually help you interpret the data. I have had so many occasions where I've had a client who says, you know, blah, 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 this is what I came back and this is my conclusion. And I'm like, yeah, but that's one of 25 conclusions you could have based off of the data that you've gotten back. What makes you think that that's the right one? And so that idea of being able to bring people in and say, what do you think, right? Before you jump to that conclusion, really inviting more voices to the table, really huge. But I do have one other quick question for a two quick questions. One is, People are going to say, that's all great, but I don't have time for that. And I don't have the money for it. So what, what are some, I guess, techniques that you've used that you, that don't really require to, I mean, those things do require time and money. And I want to make sure that we're saying put time and money into your DEI space. Absolutely. But are there ways to do that, that don't, you know, completely, uh, you know, take you out, right? <laughs> because you don't have enough money to, to be able to accomplish or enough time to be able to accomplish it. Can you do it still? Oh, absolutely. I think about um, one of my values is curiosity. And it's where I anchor much of my uh, engagement in DEI work is being curious and asking questions. Uh, one of those is, I mean, I, I disclosed before that I question convention often, like just because this is this way doesn't mean that it has to remain this way. And the answer is always no, it doesn't. <laughs> Right, but it doesn't cost us, like there's no currency in asking questions. There might be some cultural capital, 
right, that we have to expend in asking questions or elevating our, our, our voice or inserting a question. And I think about um, ways to do DEI work that don't cost money, so that are anchored in questions. Questioning power structures that exist. So power centered in who are the decision makers? How are they making decisions? Who do they include in those decisions? So like in asking all of those questions, right? And I might ask some of myself and I kind of like, maybe I have an answer to this. Then I ask my direct supervisor if I'm given an opportunity to ask at a committee or some other gathering or an elected official, right? Because I'm connected to a lot of elected officials who who can also answer those questions. If they don't have answers, they might be like, oh, I cannot answer that. Right. And which I also think is powerful, right? In in a DEI lens, it's like having folks acknowledge, I don't have the answer. So saying I don't know is powerful, particularly in a society that broadly, that just doesn't want to be quote unquote wrong or doesn't want to be corrected. Um, But asking questions and folks are likely to follow up. So I think about um, disrupting power in that way. And DEI work is about disrupting systems of power that uh, intentionally and unintentionally oppress and exclude others. Um, I think engaging in a power analysis around, so decisions, who's going to be impacted by this decision, by this investment of resources, and resources defined broadly. So not just money, it could be where you're investing staff time, where you're putting your limited technology resources, things of that nature. Sure. Part of the the, the power analysis that's embedded there. Um, and then I think going back to something I shared in the beginning, what are the populations that we are intending to advantage or we are intending to serve? And by doing so, who are we not serving? Who are we not reaching that may need right. services from us in a more profound way? Or we've been doing this very generalist practice. So I think about my own uh, work at UW-Madison. We've been doing this very generalist practice mm-hmm. about like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work to change uh, campus climate. And we're going to do that via programming and invite students into spaces to build community, to cultivate a sense of belonging, which are all important for marginalized and minoritized folks to feel like uh, we belong in a space. And we are discovering as a result of data, some data collection, but primarily inviting students to help us interpret that data, that our interventions aren't what's needed. What we're Mm -hmm. planning aren't are not what's needed. Where the intervention needs to happen is at a higher level and in the other spaces where students are spending a lot of time. So where they reside in their neighborhoods, in the classroom, which we have not been targeting, um, quote unquote, targeting to for intervention. And I think about that as a route to, I mean, inviting people in as a route to disrupt power, power, like to disrupt norms. I also think about in my personal practice about being transparent. Um, and then, right. So, I mean, the, for some reason, I don't know why, but it makes me um, think of the phrase that I heard as a kid that like your daddy wasn't a glass maker. Yeah. Um, if you ever heard that phrase, right. I so like, I, I'm physically not transparent, but, um, I can update folks. So like, here's a conversation that I had. Here's what I was thinking here. Are the notes that I, I took, so, here's how yeah. I was feeling in this, right? So that's an aspect of the transparency, like how I was feeling in response because how I was feeling in response to what was being discussed will inform what I'm inclined to share with you Absolutely. and what I might strategize to do in response to that conversation. 
So all along the way while campus was discussing, like we're canceling all of our events, right? That like I'm updating folks every step of the way and letting folks know, particularly the people who report um, directly to me, there's information that I'm inclined to withhold because I'm concerned about the impact that this will have on you, right? So like that's sort of being transparent about the decision-making process as well. So I'm deciding Mm -hmm. that I will share with you and invite you if you want additional information. I will share with you additional information up to the point that I have no additional information to share or I or I get to a point at which I can no longer share information with you. And there might be a specific reason that I cannot share specific information with you. It might be a personnel issue, so I can't share specific information. Or as happens in the UW system, if a meeting goes into quote unquote closed session, then like nothing is reported during the closed session of the meeting, for example. And I also honor when people want to be anonymous or like have something kept in confidence, right? So that's that's also part of the practice that like someone requested to remain anonymous when they gave this feedback. This person is asking this question and wants it kept confidential. Sure. We will respect and honor those. Like this this is part of my practice. And I think that transparency and being transparent requires folks to do some personal reflection on their engagement and attachment to power, like how how much you crave or want power, right? How much you crave or sure. want to be in control and where is that, um, where does that reside in you, right? Um, I think in the course of my life, feeling like I didn't have a lot of control growing mm-hmm. up, I exerted and wanted a lot of control as an adult. And as I'm grow and move through that and heal through some of that. Um, I don't want to have as much control. And I realize that me exerting control is oppression acting through me. Like a phrase that I encountered before is that as you inhabit a system, the system inhabits you, or as you inhabit a culture, a culture inhabits you. So how like sexism, I inhabit in a culture of sexism, or I live in a culture of sexism, and it may inhabit me and then act through me. Similarly with like white supremacy, classism. Exactly. Gotta shut that down. I think that you're right. I think being transparent and saying like, I'm still working on this and being humble, saying, I don't know how, you know, uh, this is going to work out, but here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. Here are the questions that I still have. And you just mentioned three things that are totally free, being transparent, bringing people in and asking questions that those are three things that are essentially free. Some social capital might be incurred, but they're essentially free. And they're all things that we can be doing in our DEI practice. Well, I know this is at the end of the time that we have together, but I know that there's going to be people like me who want to stay connected with you. So what's the best way to do that? So folks can email me at warren.sheer.com. W-A-R-R-E-N dot S-C-H-E-R-E-R at WISC, W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I use my full name on all of those. My Twitter and Instagram handle is at Warren A. Shear. And you can find me there. Also really great um, ways to, to cackle with me throughout the day. 
Absolutely. Well, it is so awesome to see you, to hear you, to learn from you. I'm so glad that we have so many young people and so many young professionals who are going to be able to rub elbows with you as they grow into the wonderful leaders uh, that they're going to be, because I know that you're changing in a complete other generation as you're thinking about how you're shifting this power. And I'm just, I'm delighted to have you as a friend. I'm delighted to have you as somebody I can look up to. Uh, And I'm also just, I I feel like I'm a mentee. Can I be a mentee? I want to be in that. I I feel the reverse is true. I'm consistently inspired by you and marvel at what you are doing and the ways you are contributing to and giving back to communities. Well, thank you. Well, we have mutual love then. But I just want to say thank you. Glad to have you, friends who are listening and watching. I just want to say thank you so much for participating again in Uplifting Impact. I know that if we continue to push this conversation, if we continue to be vulnerable, if we continue to be transparent, if we continue to use our social capital to ask questions, to show up, to really think about strategy with this perspective, we can completely change the way that we are including other people people in the world and we can just make it better let's do it this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com